Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 60 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome back to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a festive season showstopper lined up for you today. Uh, yes indeed I've been away teaching, training, educating but I'm back here now. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with my guest, Dr. Frederick Mao. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media and also comment on some of the content of those stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Frederick Mao. We'll be talking about the use of narrative therapy within hypnotherapy in particular. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I then bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging professional, friendly, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made and the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis.com hyphenweekly.com that's just hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com you can add your thoughts comments and make any suggestions there too please do share this podcast on facebook twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community it's greatly appreciated if you enjoy this podcast then please do give us a favorable rating perhaps even a review at itunes and i'll be your bff if you do so first of all, today is this week's interview. When I was at the UK Hypnosis Convention uh, recently, I boldly and proudly wore a bow tie, uh, one to present my lecture in during the day and another one when delivering my keynote presentation at the gala dinner. There was just one other man who wore a bow tie that entire weekend too. And not only was there just one other man teaching and having fun wearing bow ties, bow ties that had been tied by hand as well, not clip-ons, but someone else wearing bow ties with aplomb in a very comfortable debonair manner. And that other man was my guest today, Dr. Frederick Mao. I tracked him down. At the event, we chatted as much as we could do, and I invited him onto the podcast, and I'm delighted that I did. Frederick is someone I find very easy to like, and who I found to be thought of very fondly by everyone who knows him that I encounter in the hypnotherapy field. Therefore, for now, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. <music> So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome to Hypnosis Weekly the one and only Dr. Frederick Mao. Frederick, welcome to the show. Adam, it's delightful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, um, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about you for a moment. Tell us now about your, what, what's your background. Um, how did you get into this field and how have you arrived at where you are now? <laughs> um, well, it wasn't a grand plan. I, um, I got laid off from my corporate job. The, uh, the company actually uh, closed down their offices here and laid everyone off. Um, I began doing some consulting work to, and looking for honest labor. Uh, and I ran into a guy that owned a, a hypnosis place, and he said, you should come and work with me. You'd be great. And I said, you know, that's, um, that's completely crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... It's, I was doing consulting work, so I had some extra time, and it seemed like it would be fun at parties, which it, it totally, of course, <laughs> is. And so I, uh, I started working with him, 
and I um, I fell in love with it. <clears throat> I saw how powerful the process was to um, tell people create change. Uh, I was dealing with a bit of physical pain at the time myself, and um, <clears throat> pardon me, and dealing with a bit of physical pain at the time myself, and managed to eliminate that using hypnosis, and just totally fell in love with it. And so then I worked forward from there. Great, great. And and with regards to hypnosis, wh where are you at as far as hypnosis is concerned? That is, um, um, that that that, that never-ending question. How do you how do you define hypnosis? And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you how you arrived at that definition. And and if you explain hypnosis to your clients, how how you do that? How you explain it to clients, or how you explain it? You know, when you do get cornered um, at a dinner party. The most basic definition is that hypnosis is a um, is is the art of suggestion. And I really do think that suggestive right. language can be used at, at really any of the levels of consciousness other than, uh, than, than perhaps deep sleep. The way I explain it takes just a moment. Um, I'll point out the little voice in your head that you think of as you is called your executive function. Mm -hmm. The seat of the executive function is your uh, frontal temporal lobe, which is a part of your brain right behind your forehead. When you go to sleep at night, that part of your brain shuts down, shuts off. But it doesn't shut off like a light switch. It shuts off like a dimmer switch. So if you think of being totally awake as like a 100-watt bulb burning brightly, and then that nodding off place right before you fall asleep is like a 15-watt you know, nightlight, that's a good illustration of what happens to cognitive processing. It's completely natural, totally normal. It's why you're not thinking when you're asleep. But that's not the only thing that's, uh, that's going on in your brain. Important for us is your limbic system. So these are... Um, deeper structures like the uh, the amygdala, the anterior cingulate cortex, um, that run um, emotion and also that run um, you know autonomic nervous system body mm. experience. That part of you is really interested in your survival. That's where fight or flight and stress responses live, and that part of you is always on, always operating, um, always taking care of you. So. As you relax, cognitive processing goes down. Um, you get frontal lobe disengagement, but that limbic emotional part is still operating. So the more relaxed you are, the easier it is for us to access that emotional part. My key idea is that emotion, not information, drives behavior, which is pretty much backward from most of the, um, most of the approaches and models of change that we have today, which are, are cognitive change processes. Yeah. Um, but more directly accessing the emotions um, is just a very good, very fast way to create change. So a definition of hypnosis would be that it would be a, um, a deactivation of executive function in the prefrontal, um, facilitating more, um, more limbic emotional engagement. Mm, mm. Um, um, now I, I'm guessing, I, I'm guessing that, 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 what, what, I don't know for sure whether that was, whether that was, you know, something that, that, that was taught, something that you, that, that, that you engaged with straight away when you became interested in hypnosis um, <laughs> before Good you Lord started no. working. <laughs> um, 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 so, so what I'm really interested in, 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 you know, because I, you know, I, I, I know from having met you and I know from from your website you have a, a keen interest in in neuroscience um, um, and how that relates with regards to what we do tell me tell me a little bit who are some of your major influences within this field and perhaps some of the some of the books some of the authors that have taught you the most some of the teachers that have been influential upon you and perhaps give us uh, give, give us some of the reasons why even well, I consider myself to be an Ericksonian hypnosis, and I've, I've read a, a good bit of the Erickson-Rossi stuff, which I, I suspect Erickson sort of talked and, you know, had otherwise got written down. Yeah. Um, obviously, books like, um, you know, Dave Ellman's Hypnotherapy. Um, you know, I really came to this, Adam, backward. I, I sort of came to this from, from outside. Uh, the original... Um, fellow that I came to hypnosis with was uh, the, uh, part of a franchise. There was a, a gentleman here in the States, um, Patrick Porter, um, that tried to franchise hypnosis through a chain of, um, of centers called Positive Changes. And my original training was, um, was their internal training. 
um, which his that was a modified NLP model. Um, I decided not to stay with him when I went into with with that franchise when I went into business on my own and began to look for other areas to study. I'm largely self-taught. I've just done a lot of reading and a lot of research. A lot of it has been um, trial and error with clients, then scholarly works. Um, I have a lot of regard for Melissa Tears. Her her books have been important to me, um, and also the trainings that that I've uh, that I've attended that she's done. Um, I decided I ran across the National Guild of Hypnotists and decided, well, this is the largest group out there, so they they probably know a lot of what they're talking about. Mm. And I decided to go take their uh, their train the trainer uh, training, which I I completed. Um, I mean, and that was useful. But I, to be honest with you, I don't. I don't have a mentor. I don't have any one person or model that I sort of look at that I say, um, you know, this is uh, this is the approach that I'm taking. I've I've sort of cobbled this together. Yeah. Uh, and I am a I am a professional counselor at this point. You know, hypnosis. Um, some of my my background and my doctoral degree had to do with uh, with counseling anyway. Um, and I decided to get that license in the United States. So I'm, I'm trained as a counselor, which um, is essentially the same thing as a clinical psychologist. Um, so I'm a licensed mental health professional. I've just done a lot of research. As I worked through my degree programs um, in counseling, I really thought a lot about how that applied to hypnosis. It led me to do a lot of research on my own, yeah. um, reading in scholarly journals. So it's probably not a very fulfilling answer, but I've, I've kind of ended up here in a lot, to a large degree, I think, on my own. On the, on the contrary, I find it to be a, a, a very fulfilling answer. I, I, I love the fact um, um, that, that, that the mindset and the approach to, to study that, 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 you, that you had, you know, based upon having doctoral studies under your belt already, um, was something that, that, that enabled you and mobilised you to explore this field and create... Um, um, you know, an approach that is that is your own. Um, um, some you know com components of which we're going to um, discuss in some some detail later on, which I'm really excited about. Um, with regards to you know, you know the, the years you've been working in this field and throughout the research and and the application um, um, of what you've been doing, what what's been one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed, Frederick? Um. Well, my, I'm tempted to go with um, dealing with um, conversion disorder and multiple personality, which I've, I've done both of those. But actually, uh, I had um, about a year ago, I had a, uh, a mom come in in an absolute panic with her 14-year-old daughter yeah. um, who had uh, thrown up more days since she was a toddler than not. Um, they couldn't determine a medical reason for this. She had had a wide variety of treatments, including surgeries. It didn't fit the criteria for an eating disorder because the onset was years too early. And also the girl didn't have any body image issues or anything like that. Mm. Um, my suspicion was that this limb, this, uh, this limbic behavior um, of, of throwing up had been locked in emotionally. Um, and that if we uh, if we uh, if we reframed the emotions around that that physical behavior that would go away, um, I was able to uh, we were able to eliminate that. Um, it took well, we largely eliminated it in a couple of sessions. It really took six six weeks to get the behavior to entirely go away. Um, it has been um, oh, a year and a half now. The last I've heard from them, she's doing fine. Wow. Uh, and we've managed to get rid of the behavior. I was, you know, I, I, I was thrilled with that. Yeah, 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 I bet. I bet. Um, you know, I, I just find that stuff amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I just find it wonderful that something um, so seemingly debilitating um, can, can even be worked with. Uh, you know, I'm guessing that that's something that a lot of our listeners wouldn't consider a typical issue that's being cited, and one that you know some people may even um, feel f feel feel that they were not equipped to work with. Um, um, Frederick, if we could go back to, to when you started out as a hypnotherapist, um, 
as, as, oh, as, as a hypnosis professional, knowing knowing what you know now, um, is there anything that you would do differently? And, and, and if so, what? And is there any advice that person and um, that the person that you are today would give to that younger you that you'd consider sharing with our listeners? Don't buy yellow pages ads and be more careful with what you do as far as business decisions. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was really good on the hypnosis side of things. I definitely have learned and grown over time. And I, uh, there was, I guess, the, you know, the, in actuality, seriously, the, the business part of it is difficult. There's so much you have to be, um, to be an expert with. And I, I made mistakes early on that cost me thousands of dollars that I didn't need to have done. But, I, you know, I consider it tuition in the, in the school of hard knocks. <laughs> I remember one time I was, I was taking a career counseling class. And I, and I wasn't excited about it because I do a little career counseling. But it, I, I mostly like to focus on significant mental health issues. Uh, but I was reading along in the book, and um, it had a little quote in there um, from G.S. Howard, who's a psychologist, that said, uh, people tell themselves stories that give their lives meaning. They emphasize certain things and de-emphasize others. Mm. If you change the emphasis of the story, you change the meaning of your life. And that was an epiphany moment for me. It hit me like like a truck. I, I put the book down, and I just sort of sat, and I stared at the wall, and I could just feel so many different things that I had learned yeah. in my counseling training and my hypnosis training and experience. So many things that I knew and was grasping at and couldn't quite pull together. And it all just gelled together. And I was like, that is it. That is exactly it. And what I ended up gelling down to was my, my key thought is that emotion, not information, drives behavior stories frame emotion and create meaning. The problems that we're treating are problems of existential meaning. If we change the meaning, we change people's lives. Mm. And, and that, that click of it's about story and meaning, which is about suggestions. Stories are suggestions, but they're not just sort of cognitive statements. They're stories grab a hold of you. And so that that would be the piece that if I if the younger me was was ready for it, and I don't know if the younger me would have been ready for it, but if the younger me would have been ready for it, that would be the piece that I would take back. Yeah, yeah. I um, I was busy. I was busy writing down a couple of bits uh, fr from from the quotes that you mentioned there because I think there's something really lovely there, and I think there's some some exceptional advice. Um, um, and and just to echo, yeah, do not pay for the yellow pages. Um, uh, I have to, in my own defense, I have to say it was right at the time where that was going away. But I, I really got ripped off by AT and T. At any rate, we'll we'll just move on from there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry to get distracted with with the rather mundane stuff when we've got this just this this beautiful um, 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 reference that you were making with regards to to narrative, you know, stories frame emotion and create meaning. Um, something we're gonna we're gonna really explore a little bit later on. Um, mm -hmm. um, within your approach, um, um, that what we're gonna be looking at a little bit later. Um, just tell me, what are your thoughts with regards, if you have any, with regards to evidence based approaches to hypnotherapy? Oh, I think they're 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 critically important. Um, our culture is um, an empiric an empiricist culture. Um, science has credibility. Uh, I think as far as reaching the general culture, um, that's absolutely critical from a marketing standpoint. From a from a therapeutic standpoint, even more important. You know, it's important to know that the stuff you do um, is valid and works. Yeah. So I think that's really good. Um, and, you know, I, most of the reading I end up doing are in, in neuroscience journals and medical journals. Although, you know, I'll, I'll pull in articles from something like the International Journal of Clinical Hypnosis, those kind of peer-reviewed journals. One of my frustrations with, um, with hypnotic studies is that sometimes the, the study will tell you what they actually did and you get something like a script which i think is mm. i'm not big on using scripts with clients but if you're doing research you need something like a script because you need to know what happened yeah. um but sometimes you know you'll have articles that'll just say things like well we used hypnosis to do this and i'm sitting there going well that's sort of like saying we use therapy 
Yeah, you know, yeah, or, absolutely. We had ice cream. That's fabulous. What flavor? There are only like five hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> I, I, I'm there with you. I, I, I always want to know. What, what, how did you even conceptualize hypnosis to the participants that were involved? Let alone, you know, share with us what what methodology actually was employed. Um, so yeah, I, I I hear you on that. There's a there's a study, for example. There's a study that um, looked at ways of treating alcohol dependence, and um, and the top two treatment methods are motivational interviewing and solution-focused brief therapy, mm. um, both of which, I mean, solution-focused brief therapy is descended from Ericksonian hypnosis. Motivational interviewing, the guy that put that together, uh, Miller, was a hypnotist, and it, it sounds like Milton Erickson. But hypnosis is not until, like, number 11 on the list is a treatment modality. Mm. Now, that's still pretty good out of 48 things, and yeah. we're still doing way better than, like, Alcoholics Anonymous. But I suspect hypnosis would be a lot higher on that list if we were able to go back and look at those studies and go, okay, guys, what did you actually do? And then sort through the approaches that, you know, kind of make sense from the ones that are not so, I, I just, I don't know what the study said, because with hypnosis, you don't always get that, that specificity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, I hear you on that. That's, um, it's really lovely to, to feel your pain a little bit with that one. <laughs> um, um, tell us, um, Frederick. Obviously, we're going to be, we're going to be speaking to you um, a, a bit more uh, a little bit later on in the show. Um, but for, for now, where can people go to learn more about your work, your approach to hypnosis, uh, the books that you offer, and things like that? Um, my website is watermarkcolumbia.com, C-O-L-U-M-B-I-A. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. I kind of regret that I, uh, that I selected a website years ago that has a geographical location in it, but, but it is what it is. I have two books. Um, if you put in my name, Frederick Mall, M-A-U, into, uh, into Amazon, um, you will find them. There's a different reality, and there's emotion, the power of change. Mm. Um, and they are available on, uh, on Amazon in the U.K., also right. on the continent. Um, so, yeah, you can find them. You can easily find them available there. Brilliant. Brilliant. And there'll be a, a link um, to the website, uh, watermarkcolumbia.com, um, um, where you can also find and have an explore around um, because you, you, you'll find um, fascinating information uh, on those books that Frederick just mentioned there as well. Um, um, Frederick, for now, thank you ever so much for that. Um, we will be back with Dr. Frederick Marr in a few short minutes time. I really enjoyed that. More from Frederick later. On to this week's hypnosis in the news then. Our first story uh, is entitled Hypnotherapy Trial Reduces Pain and Anxiety in Children with Burns. And this is reference to a world first study that's found medical hypnosis can reduce pain and anxiety in children being treated for serious burns. Uh, the University of Queensland uh, Child Health Research Centre analyzed whether hypnotherapy decreased pain, anxiety and stress for children undergoing potentially painful changes to their burns dressings. Um, the head researcher, Mr. Chester, uh, says children in the hypnotherapy group reported 70% lower pain and 67% lower anxiety scores on average compared with those receiving standard care before their second dressing change. Before the third dressing change, the hypnotherapy group had 90% lower pain and 84% lower anxiety. These results are clinically significant. And there the quote ends. Uh, wonderful stuff. Uh, Mr. Chester also also said that the parents of children in the hypnotherapy group also reported significantly lower worst pain ratings on behalf of their children across all of the dressings changes. I mean, he, he adds, children receiving hypnotherapy had significantly lower heart rates 
before and after their third dressing change. Um, he goes on to say that uh, previous research had shown that adults with burns benefited significantly from hypnotherapy um, through reduced pain and anxiety, lower medication usage, some of the stuff that we've actually covered here before. Um, but I, I really enjoyed the quote that he said at the end. If more clinicians were trained in hypnotherapy, we could reduce the stress for many children, their families and the hospital staff who treat them. Um, hurrah for this study. Hurrah for this piece uh, that's made its way into the media. I've been and had a good read of the study and it makes for some fascinating reading um, um, and it's great stuff. Our second story this week is entitled Look Into My Eyes. Oh, that's the start of it. You, you, you know what? <coughs> the reason that I just do that groan is because, you know, I just think it's such an easy thing to say, look into my eyes. Anyway, the rest of the title uh, of this uh, story that was featured in the Sun newspaper here in the UK, Andre Pierre Gagnac pays tribute to his British hypnotherapist who has helped him out of his goal-scoring rot in bizarre celebration. So once I'd got over and just brushed myself down, the, the poor uh, uh, prefix of that title, look into my eyes, groan, uh, this story is actually very amusing um, because... Uh, well, well, let me tell you about the story. Andre Pierre Gagnac uh, has turned to hypnotherapy sessions in his bid to end a two-month goal-scoring drought. Um, after scoring a goal uh, in the Mexican Liga, um, and in the semi-final for his club Tigres, Agant Leon, he paid tribute to his hypnotherapist, um, who's a fellow Brit, um, and he sprinted, and there's a video clip of this, this is why I thought it was so funny, he sprinted towards his side's substitutes, who were warming up on the sidelines, and he then simulated sending them all to sleep and they all sort of crumpled and fell on the floor it's very funny to watch it's completely not what hypnosis is about you know not unless you believe in the Benny Hinn model of hypnosis but it's amusing nonetheless since Gagnac began his hypnotherapy sessions he scored in his last three games including a hat trick in a 5-0 thrashing of a fellow side in in a cup quarter final great stuff um, as far as entertainment was concerned um, I really just enjoyed watching uh, the video clip of him of him sort of sort of pointing at them all uh, shazamming them with his hands and they all just fell to the floor uh, well done you guys <coughs> so third story this week is really a bit of an opinion piece of my own um, such as my bent on this podcast from time to time Back in my school days, I remember taking my bronze swimming certificate, you know, and silver and gold followed, swimming badges, getting a cool, one of those old school enamel badges uh, that we got back then. They were very different, in my opinion, much better than the sort of cloth material ones that my own children get today. I remember having to fetch uh, a heavy rubber brick from the bottom of the swimming pool, uh, swim a certain distance, make a float out of my pyjamas, and of course, tread water comfortably for a time period. And this is whereby you'd safely paddle to keep yourself afloat, but uh, even though you weren't going anywhere. And this notion has since become an idiom. As you'll know already, when someone is treading water, the idiom suggests that they are being active, but are not making progress, though they are also not really falling behind. And I dispute that by treading water, you are not falling behind when it comes to being a hypnotherapist. And let me just explain that. Um, for example, earlier this year, my youngest, uh, my daughter, was three years old and we had a wonderful birthday weekend celebrating at her party. I was chatting away to one of the other dads there as we attempted to decipher whether the screams coming from the soft play area were screams of fun and joy or screams of children being mortally wounded. He mentioned to me how much he was looking forward to his children being older and he painted this wonderful picture of how his life was going to be when they could discuss mature topics, do different different kinds of activities and the children would requ require less hands-on attention all of the time and I thought it was great they had a positive image of how he wanted to be um, um, however he told of how he struggled to enjoy the children at this young stage of their lives and he found them exhausting so he was going to sort of skip through these years in a bit of a haze as far as I could tell but you know what you know, I'm excited about those future days too, but they're not going to be without challenge. No age range of children is going to be without any sort of challenge unique to that time of their lives. What about learning how to make the most of now, though? 
Learning to love the stage that your children are at is learning to enjoy being alive. You know, go, go wishing your life away. That's what I wanted to tell him. Um, you know, life is happening right now. Learn how to enjoy it, how to make each moment count, no? Um, plus, the time and joy that you have now is going to pay dividends later on as you will have better relationships with your children, stronger foundations. And when you reflect on your life, it'll be coloured and flavoured with enjoyment. Every stage of life comes with its own set of challenges. But the remedy is not to wish that entire stage of life away. And this man was basically treading water with his children until they grew up and fitted his vision for being a more enjoyable age. Currently, uh, I'm running many miles a week as I prepare for the spring marathon season and my subsequent summer ultramarathon challenges, where I'll be running a 69-mile race uh, following Hadrian's Wall across the north of England. Within that training, it becomes essential to have some time focused on the goals and being aware of the outcomes. But you don't want to spend that time purely focused on the future events. You want to enjoy the runs, enjoy the training, enjoy seeing the changes you're making and enjoy the moments you have right now. My brother and I still talk about a race we ran together many years ago, a 10 miler in Alton in Hampshire here in the UK. And we both recall taking the time to engage with what we were doing. We were out on the roads on a beautiful Sunday morning with many like-minded individuals running through glorious countryside and were with each other. It's wonderful. It was wonderful. Yet yet sometimes all that could be forgotten as you're checking your pace, checking your effort levels, aiming for a certain time to complete the race in um, and make the run of a, com- you know, a, a component of something that's yet to happen. Your training schedule as a runner can end up contributing to you hitting the pause button on your enjoyment with regards to what you're doing. In order to derive satisfaction from it, you want to enjoy the journey. You know, I'm teaching you guys to suck eggs. So here's where I'm going with this today. You know, you know this stuff. I speak to a lot of hypnotherapists about their work and about their businesses. I encounter many hypnotherapists who struggle in one way or another um, at being a hypnotherapist. And um, many people say to me, you know, um, 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 that they're interested in doing some some advanced training or some different level training and, and advancing their skills but that they want to practice their skills for a bit longer before they develop any new ones or before they take on any more study or training or development. And what happens is they then tread water. They struggle to get to the place that they really want and they start to doubt that it'll ever be possible. Instead of treading water, they could have invested their energy, their time in their own development and learned how to build an effective business, for example. The same is true of their, their knowledge, their skill development. I think the best thing that you can do with your business, as I've mentioned on a previous episode of this podcast, is to astonish people, to engage them and serve them so well that they that that they're going to tell people about you and what you do. But many people, you know, within their initial training, they've learned about continued professional development, but just pay lip service to that notion. Once a hypnotherapist has completed a diploma level training, typically they think that's going to see them through forever. And they've now learned what they need to learn in order to be a successful hypnotherapist. Having invested time in a diploma course, expended effort and, of course, spent money in that initial training, our budding hypnotherapist now believes he or she is entitled to a career. You'll do better, of course, if you're good at what you do, but there's more to it than just, you know, being a diploma level hypnotherapist. Learning how to create a hypnotherapy business as well, you know, learning how to enjoy the business development aspects of it too. Too many hypnotherapists that I encounter are merely treading water, focusing off out into the distant future, hoping and grasping that things will change. Yet taking decisive action this very day here and the now is what's going to make your career. Investing time, resource in developing yourself and your career to realise the dream that you had when you first set out. Treading water may feel safe and though we may not be moving forward, We may think that we're also not falling behind. But as I said earlier, I dispute that. When you're not actively taking the right kind of action to build an effective hypnotherapy business, to be developing and honing your hypnotherapy skills and knowledge, you you start to lose enthusiasm. You start to feel weighed down by it. You start to find your business a chore rather than having the excitement you enjoyed when first studying it. And perhaps your clients 
you know, aside from all of that, are not getting as good a service that they, that they can be getting elsewhere. But essentially, you are falling behind. There are many out there who are thriving in this field and who are rediscovering each day the same level of joy that they had when they first chose to work in this field. The longer you thrive, the easier it becomes to thrive. The longer you tread water, the more your business tires. Instead of treading water, you run the risk of drowning. You can't just let yourself float. You'll lose control and become prone to the whim of the current or the tide. You want to swim strong in the direction of your dreams or express yourself beautifully like a synchronized swimmer. How's about that for the development of metaphors, huh? Importantly, importantly though, my message is simple. You know, as a hypnotherapist, you stop treading water. Okay, links to the media stories that I've talked about today are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion. And I welcome back Dr. Frederick Mao. There were so many topics to discuss potentially with Frederick and so many that, that I, I was really keen to explore with him. However, I specifically asked him if we could discuss the topic of one of his books. Uh, it, one of his books is entitled A Different Reality, and it shows how to use narrative therapy. It's not something that any of our guests have really spoken about in any great depth here on a previous episode. So I thought it would be really nice and something different and fresh to be discussed. And I was delighted when he d- agreed to do so. So narrative therapy what it is, how it fits into what we do as hypnotherapists, and much more besides. That is what we discuss here. Here is this week's professional discussion with Dr. Frederick Mao. Enjoy. So I'm delighted to be rejoined uh, by Frederick Mao. Um, And um, um, when I asked Frederick, when I was examining Frederick's work, his website, um, his publications, and really wanting to 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 to, to think of what what to discuss with this part of today's show. Um, there were so many things that I wanted to talk about, many things that I wanted to talk about. But something that really leapt out at me is something that perhaps has not been discovered or discussed, rather, in any depth or detail um, um, w- w- within this podcast or, or by any of our previous guests. And that is um, a, a narrative therapy. Narrative therapy is something um, um, that, that, that I'm really excited to talk about. Um, Frederick, welcome back. Within within your your book, A Different Reality, um, um, obviously there, the, its subtitle is Adventures in Narrative Therapy, for example. Just for anybody listening who doesn't know or isn't familiar with it, first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what is it? Just just explain us to us and those listening, what actually is narrative therapy? Narrative therapy... Um actually is an Australian approach. It comes from a fellow to counseling. It comes from a fellow named Michael White. Um, but what I, I really like about it is it fits with Ericksonian um, hypnosis. Yeah. Uh, Erickson's approach was all about story and narrative. Um, the quote that I gave you from G.S. Howard earlier is a narrative therapy, a quote that we tell ourselves stories that give our lives meaning. We emphasize certain things. Um, in, or, in, a, in essence, the idea is that um, psych, psychopathology are, are, are destructive stories that people have agreed to tell themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therapy is an exercise in story repair. Now, you know, obviously that doesn't cover absolutely everything. You know, you get severe schizophrenia seems to be something different, that kind of thing. But the vast majority of things that, for instance, a counselor or a clinical psychologist would be treating, or, or certainly the sorts of things that hypnotherapists might be, be touching around the edges of, um, th- these are these are these are problems that are stories that people have agreed to tell themselves. Mm. And the solution involves a shift in meaning. Um, I can actually tell you a little quick story with that. Please do, please do. Uh, I had a client uh, a, a year or so ago, a woman in her 60s. We were working on something else, but she told me that when she was in her 20s, she was anorexic. Uh, and I was looking at her, and I was thinking, well, obviously you're not dead because you're sitting here talking to me. Um, 
clearly we knew about um, we knew about uh, uh, anorexia, you know, 40 years ago, Karen Carpenter and and, yeah. and so forth. But we weren't particularly good at treating it. So I just I, she wasn't anorexic now. I just asked her, well, what you know, what happened? And she described being in a large city like New York where she was walking down the, um, the street with a friend of hers. And in a uh, in a reflection in the window of one of the buildings, she saw her friend's reflection. She thought, God, she looks like a ghoul. And then mm. I realized it was me. That was what she said. And then I realized it was me. Mm. And I couldn't be that. And I never had a problem with it again. Now, the thing that's interesting about this story is that, you know, this is a woman that's got mirrors around her house. She's obviously, you know, getting getting dressed, getting showered, combing her hair. Um Anorexics look bad, uh, but they don't see it. Mm. And when she saw it, when she saw it at an emotional level, there was no new cognitive information. She didn't learn anything new. No one told her anything new about how, you know, that's going to cause your organs to shut down and stuff. It was an existential shift in meaning where she couldn't be the same anymore. That's what we're going for with narrative therapy is that sort of effect. She had told herself one story, but then the story didn't make sense anymore, and it had to go away. It shifted. And and that sort of shift is what we, I believe fundamentally that that is what we produce and that is the solution that we create. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm, I, you know, I find this fascinating. Um, I, I, I want to explore that a little bit more in, in just a moment um, and, and follow that direction. But I, could you just tell us a little bit of, of how your interest in that actually evolved? You know, was that was that a component part of your original training or was your did your own interest um, or, um, 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 build and something you went on and explored or and or, or was that was that just purely born out of, you know, uh, your, your interest in Ericsson's approach, which then went off and led you to explore that in more depth? Well, I think there are a number of different things that kind of uh, um, came together. Originally, the approach I was trained in was sort of a uh, was an NLP approach. And I, I liked the NLP approach, but I, I realized pretty quickly that there seemed to be certain kinds of limitations to it. Um, it really looks a lot to me more like like technique than an organized um, than an organized theory. And it you know, I kind of began to ask what was going on with this. And when I, I realized that, um, in a in essence, it had kind of descended from Erickson, and I learned more about Milton Erickson, I, I've kind of come to think of NLP as sort of a dumbed down version of Erickson. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I think the, the key with Erickson is this idea, it's a psychodynamic approach. It's the idea that the subconscious is there and the subconscious drives things that there's the, there are these powerful emotional forces that are underneath and that the, the, the stories that we tell engage that emotional part, that part of us is interested. And as children, we love, um, we love stories. Um, our religions are about stories. We don't, you know, people don't tend to love theology, but they can love stories about Jesus. I mean, it, there are lots of different things that you you see in, uh, in our, our narratives. I mean, stories even today, we have these cultural narratives. Um, the Marvel, the Marvel Comics movies, yeah. uh, different movies that are out there, they're I very frequently will be sitting with a client and I'll end up saying something like, well, do you remember that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where this happened with Indiana Jones? The client will be like, yeah. And I'll be like, well, well, this. And there's little <laughs> yeah. snippets of stories yeah. and you, you can just see people put themselves in that place and they have this little this shift in meaning that changes. Stories are powerful and they grab us at a, at a visceral gut level. And I realized that that's what Erickson was doing with hypnosis processes, both in, in uh, you know, what he called ordinary waking uh, trance and, of course, also with induction hypnosis. Um, the, the, the story which creates the meaning that people buy into is, is the key. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, I, I hear that. Um, um, and, and with that... With that then um, sort of slotting into and becoming a, a sort of major component of, 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 of what you do currently, how does that then get applied to something like 
the, the anxiety disorders and insomnia that is mentioned um, um, so, so so prominently within within your book, A Different Reality? Well, uh, most things that come through my door, I tend to think of as anxiety. They may be anxiety disorders under the, the DSM-5, or they may be, you know, tick disorders or, or that sort of thing. I, an easy illustration to answer your question, um, Tourette's. I've treated Tourette's um, very successfully many times. And I always have a free consultation for all my clients who come in at the beginning because it's such a different approach that people want to know. They want to ask questions. I want a chance to build rapport. And then when we really get going with therapy, I want to really hit the ground running. So I let people come in and chat with me. And in the free consult, I'll sit down with someone. It's always like the family and the kid, you know, usually it's an adolescent and their family's totally panicked because of these behaviors. And, um, and I'll say, well, you know, let me, let me kind of walk you through a pattern here. We believe that, um, that behaviors can change, but that, that conditions are stuck. If I told you I smoke, I don't. But if I told you I smoke and I was going to quit, you'd probably say, that's a great idea. Smoking is bad for you. You believe smoking can change because it's a behavior, even though it doesn't feel voluntary for the people that do it. If I said, fortunately, this one's also not true. If I said, you know, I've got heart disease, but I've been thinking I'm not going to have heart disease anymore. You'd probably say, you know, Frederick, that sounds a little weird. What are you, what are you talking about? Well, when you look at the, the diagnostic manual, the DSM, what you've got for all these things are lists of behaviors. There may be, you know, 20 different things. And if you've got five or six of them or one off a of list A and three off a of list B for, you know, more than six months or whatever, then you get this diagnosis. The diagnosis sounds like a condition, but it's not a condition. It's a label for a list of behaviors. If you believe that you have a condition, I can tell you we're not going to get anywhere. If you believe that this is a set of behaviors and the behaviors can change, there's no such thing as Tourette's disorder. There are Tourette's behaviors, and they're definitely a problem. They need to be treated. But I can tell you in the initial session, I can watch the, the, uh, the, uh, the adolescent, and I can tell, I can see on your face if it clicks. And if the, if the person buys that idea, this is a behavior that can change, I can tell you that by about the sixth session, we'll eradicate the behavior We'll probably do nine sessions just to make sure that everything is really firmly in place. If the person doesn't buy that, if they continue to think of it as a condition, we'll never be successful. Mm. Yeah. And it boils down to that. And, and really, all the work happens in the free consultation, not even in the induction hypnosis. It is a shift of story and meaning. After that, everything is just cleaning it up. And if they buy that, if there's that shift in meaning, we're going to be successful. That's the power of narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so, the the the, the means of a therapist um, helping to to sort of almost almost have the client retell that narrative is that would I be correct in that 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 the, the, the aim is of them being able to to, to shift and alter that that the narrative that they are telling themselves within within the, the, the context of the therapeutic issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I tend to, like I said at the beginning, hypnosis is the art of suggestion, and suggestive language can be used at any of the levels of consciousness. I don't get lost in the romance of induction. I do induction hypnosis all the time. It's my typical method with every client. But everything that's happening while you're sitting here in my office is designed to be suggestion and is totally, on, totally focused on... Um, own shifting narrative. I had an addiction client in, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the tolerance break, you know, that, uh, that someone who has an addiction, they realize the drug can build up a tolerance so they don't feel the same high off of it. So very clever addicts will yeah. take a tolerance break so that they can then, you know, get the high again. Yeah. This guy looks at me and he goes, you know, I'm so lost in this, I haven't even taken a tolerance break for six months. And what he's saying is, you know, there's, I'm hopeless, there's no way I can get out of this. So I listened to what he said, you know, he said that to me and I said, you know, I'm glad getting high is so unimportant to you that it doesn't need, you don't even need to take a tolerance break. You're about ready to get rid of this. Mm. And he, you could see like the little wheels turning. He just kind of looked at me. He was like, yeah, I am. Now, 
that was a crazy statement. I mean, that was totally twisting what he said. I agreed with him, but I took what he was saying in a totally different direction. And you could see that he bought it. And there was that little shift in narrative, that little shift in meaning. It's like, yeah, I haven't really been feeling these highs. It's, it's you know, you, you could tell he was there. It's, yeah, it's time for me to let go of this. Yeah. So you take a statement of, of really utter despair and turn it into, well, you know, that's really hopeful for you. That's the power of shifting narrative. Yeah, 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 I get that. And and does does that fit into, I mean, can it fit into a, any model or approach of, of hypnosis and, and therapy? Or does it really, does it really, I mean, I'm guessing it would favour an Ericksonian approach, for example, but it could fit in. I mean, it, it, it can appeal to, 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 to all backgrounds as far as hypnotherapy is concerned? Well, I mean, I suppose so. I guess I have to think through all the different backgrounds. It definitely can kind of fit with an NLP approach. Um, you know, it's not so much a direct suggestion approach because when you give someone direct suggestion, you tend to get reactants where they push back against it. Um, narrative is about soft selling things. So it's, it really is an inferred or an indirect approach. Yeah. But anything that's an inferred or an indirect approach, confusion is a big part of using narrative approaches. Um, I mean, Erickson really was a master of narrative, and the stories, the storytelling component of it is key. I think there are a couple of places where people fall down on Ericksonian hypnosis. That one, they think it has to take a long time. No, no, no. These are very brief interventions where we go out and work with it. Um, another thing is the idea that you're going to follow Erickson's stories. Well, you know, there's not a, I mean, seeing Erickson's model is worthwhile, but you don't go use Erickson's stories. They're dated mm -hmm. and they were specific to his life and specific clients. I think where the approach is really hard is you have to be on your feet. You have to be actively listening, totally engaged with your client, and you have right. to be pulling from your own rich experience as a person and as a therapist so you've, you've got to be able to um, pull in these cultural stories and narratives like, you know, movies and stuff that people have seen. You have to listen to the person's story and then think about ways it could twist in another direction. There might even be little stories about me that I tell, you know, my experience. It's not my therapy session. It's my client's therapy session. So you're always careful with sort of self-disclosure. But when there's a, a little bit of a personal story that can throw a I look at these little micro stories that you tell as ways of sort of throwing different light on things. Yeah. And then within the hypnosis process itself, I mean, essentially what I'm doing is a, um, I do a lot of confusion. I do a lot of guided imagery and visualization um, and seeing things differently. I do a lot of, um, of just suggestive imagery. And I tend to think of the processes as, as sort of like impressionistic painting. Um, you know, an impressionistic painting doesn't actually look like Paris in the rain. It just sort of evokes the emotion of it. So I want to sketch enough of a story to set up a framework, but then I know the client is going to fill in the details. And I see my clients come up with solutions that I would never have thought of that are totally beautiful and completely work for them. So I sort of take them into the story, and then I, I kind of sketch things in a way that allows them to fill it in. It's not a cookie cutter approach, mm. Mm. you know. But I like um, that. I, I, I like that. I think um, um, individuals get an opportunity to draw upon something that's that's that is, of course, really going to be really client centered. And and the fact that you know you get to incorporate modern cultural referencing and 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 so much more besides, um, it, it really really appeals to me. I really. I really like that. Um, with regards to, to, to people that are listening, um, um, what, what can hypnotherapists, for example, um, um, expect from the book, uh, A Different Reality, Frederick? Well, I mean, what we were just talking about, there are a couple of perfect examples of what we were just talking about in the book. One would be, and, and thank you for, for mentioning my book, uh, one would be the, the three doors process at the beginning. Mm. Um, this is a process that um, is about handling stressful situations differently. And it, it's a simple metaphor, but it invites people to think of a situation that's been um, stressful, difficult, a problem, and then invites them to step through a doorway and see themselves handling it differently. Mm. And we do this three different times. The third time is, you know, with a, with a bit of humor put with it. 
just so that the person is kind of thinking about wild possibilities. Um, the, the next process in the book is a fading photographs process, which is about letting go of, uh, of past emotions that are problems mm. uh, that are coming into the present and creating habit, but then also going back into the past to grab exceptions and positive emotions where things have gone well and to pull them forward. I don't know what the past vignettes are that they're going to be fading out. I sure don't know what the positive emotions are that they're going to pull forward. Both of the processes um, give that sort of open language that it seems like I'm saying something when I'm really not, and it allows them to kind of pull in, um, to pull in their own thought, their own um, their own change. So yeah. the book, the book gives a good illustration of how to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And 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 how is it being received by hypnotherapists? I guess that's a challenging question for you to ask. For, for me to ask you, rather? Well, people love my books and they buy them. Yeah. Um, no, I actually, the <laughs> feedback I've had on the books has been very, very good. I, I really, you know, Adam, it's kind of interesting. I, I enjoy um, hypnosis and hypnosis conferences, but I really tend to think of myself as a counselor. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm involved in, in that world as well. And I know that with counselors, the, the books have really been earth-shaking because all of those people have had, like, you know, uh, have an hour on hypnosis somewhere in their in their yeah. graduate training that they never yeah. really took seriously. And then when I go out and I demonstrate the processes, and you know I'm the keynote speaker at conferences and stuff. You have 500 people sitting there, and you you demonstrate a process in front of them, and they're blown away with the power of it. Yeah. So I know in the counseling world that the the books have been phenomenally well received. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Um, and and we are going to have um, a link to, um, to 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 the page on your website um, where where people can go and read about a different reality. Um, um, and and Frederick, thank you ever so much. We're we're out of time today. Um, um, thank you ever so much for coming, talking about that. Um, um, if people want to learn more information um, um, with regards to Frederick, his approach, his books, and in particular narrative therapy, which I'm fascinated with, um, watermarkcolumbia.com. Um, um, and you can have an explore and you'll find out more about all of that. Um, Frederick, my thanks to you for coming and being my guest on this week's edition of Hypnosis Weekly. Adam, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed that discussion. I particularly like that quote, stories frame emotion and create meaning. Um, I even felt validated by Frederick's mention of the use of Marvel characters in therapy, making reference to those. For example, those who know me know that I use a lot of sci-fi references in my teaching in particular and hypnotherapy sessions. You see, former students of mine, all those Red Dwarf and Lord of the Rings references and quotes were not in vain after all. There is a link to Frederick's website on this episode's page at the Hypnosis Weekly website. So, on to our evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. And it's this. Self-hypnosis training significantly reduces pain intensity, pain interference, and improves sleep quality among veterans with chronic lower back pain. So, this is in reference to a study entitled A Randomized Controlled Trial of Hypnosis Compared with Biofeedback for adults with chronic lower back pain. It's a recent study, it's uh, 2014, by Tan and colleagues that featured and was published in the European Journal of Pain. And self-hypnosis training, as the title suggests, outperformed biofeedback controls within this study. Over half of the participants who received hypnosis reported clinically meaningful reductions in pain intensity. And these benefits were maintained for at least six months after treatment. Interestingly, the findings indicated that two sessions of self-hypnosis training with audio recordings for home practice may be as effective as eight sessions of heterohypnosis treatment. Um, and, and the findings have important implications for the application of hypnosis treatment for chronic pain management. 
So there it is. Self-hypnosis training significantly reduces pain intensity, pain interference and improves sleep quality amongst veterans with chronic lower back pain. And full study details, even a PDF can be found, uh, a link to it can be found at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. So that is it for our 60th edition. Uh, I do have many more exciting guests that I'll be welcoming to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. My guest next time out is hypnotherapist, author and trainer Inna Alström. We are going to be talking quantum physics even. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions and questions. Do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again to Dr. Frederick Mao and thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, Goodbye for now.